When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to be talking about uh, a huge um, historical transition that took place after the Second World War and there are examples of this in totalitarian societies and democratic societies uh, around the world um, and this really lasts uh, until probably the the late 1970s uh, and early 1980s, um, uh, in, it's, it's ascendant until then, and that is the belief in centralisation and state planning. These are the sorts of things that people normally ascribe to the the communist world, but um, there were clear limit, clear sort of uh, structures. Um, and uh, limitations and boundaries in place in liberal democratic uh, capitalist societies uh, as well. Um, the Second World War had been uh, a kind of a showcase for state planning. Uh, the war could not have been won by uh, America, Britain and the Soviet Union without it. Um, Interestingly, um, I was listening to an interview with the Greek uh, economist Yanis Varoufakis the other day, and his view was that after the Wall Street crash, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, not a, uh, a socialist by any stretch of the imag- imagination, but a patrician, um, somebody who um, saw his job as managing capitalism, um, imposed the New Deal on America, uh, introduced the New Deal on America to stop really capitalism devouring itself. And his argument, Varoufakis's argument, was that um, the New Dealers and the Soviet Union destroyed fascism uh, in the, the Second World War. 
obviously Britain's involvement is there, but Britain, you know, midway through the Second World War, has become the, the junior partner, uh, reliant on America, and also employs much of the same kind of state-directed control of the wartime e economy. The normal economic laws that uh, Britain has abided by for the last couple of centuries, between 1939 and 1945, are basically off. So today what I'm going to do is I'm looking at The Fear and the Freedom by Keith Lowe, which is a phenomenal book. Um, and it really is about the kind of the long shadow of the, the Second World War. Um, Keith Lowe's work, as I've, I've talked about before in Savage Continent, is really exemplary uh, research. Um, and I like, one of the reasons I like this book is it, um, much like David Reynolds' um, The Long Shadow um, uh, about the First World War, is it looks at the how the Second World War stays with us in culture and memory. Um, so in his chapter, chapter 7 of the book, Planned Utopias, he writes, The scientific and technological innovations that took place during the war would never have happened without government involvement. The atomic bomb project was a perfect example of well-directed state power. The American government had set themselves a goal, poured money and expertise into reaching it, and had ended up with transforming the world. There were many other instances that were almost as, as impressive. In Britain, for example, the wartime government had imposed the world's most comprehensive system of food rationing. This had not only conserved vital food supplies during the war, but had also ensured that everyone, rich or poor, received a scientifically balanced diet. Despite terrible shortages of most foodstuffs, infant mortality rates actually declined in wartime Britain, as did deaths in the wider population from a variety of diseases. Such successes, bolstered by the great victory of the war itself, immediately raised the question, if central planning by state could bring triumph in war, could it not also bring triumph in peace? If old laissez-faire economics of the 1920s and 30s had led to collapse, depression and ultimately to the war itself, was it not time for the uh, uh, now for the state to step in and make sure that similar catastrophes would never happen again? And why stop at economic reform? Could the state, should the state, use its power to make society fairer, more equal and better for everyone? These were the ideas that were in play at the end of the Second World War. Fatefully, um, 30 years later, Milton Friedman, the um, architect, uh, the sort of the, the intellectual theorist of monetarism or kind of neoliberalism as, as we would think of it, uh, said that um, what the most important uh, thing about a crisis is the ideas that are lying around at, at the time, uh, and that it is in moments of crisis that previously marginal ideas can suddenly become uh, dominant or hegemonic ideas. In 1945, in the aftermath of the Second World War, the ideas that are lying around are statist uh, ideas, and they manage to, to dominate uh, the political landscape of Britain, uh, Europe, uh, America, Japan, and of course the um, the, the the Soviet Union um, until the the mid 1970s at the very least. It is the the crisis of the mid 1970s of inflation and oil shocks uh, that begin to break apart uh, the belief that the state 
has the answers or the state is capable of intervening successfully in economic affairs. And those laissez-faire thinkers who were marginal figures in the 1940s, the likes of, of Hayek and Ludwig van Mises and people like that, they suddenly find that they have um, a, a case to argue again that, uh, as Ronald Reagan put it, um, the government can't solve problems, the government is the problem. So one thing that's worth remembering is that these were broadly mainstream ideas in uh, the mid to late 1940s. Um, the uh, ideas that uh, Sir William Beveridge put forward from 1942 onwards in the Beveridge Report um, of dealing with um, the, the kind of the, the, the five uh, the five evils of poverty, ignorance, squalor, idleness, and illness. Well, Beveridge himself was, of course, uh, not a socialist. He was a, a liberal. It's also worth pointing out he was a eugenicist. Uh, before we kind of get all too emotional about the guy, but. Um, the uh, Churchill wartime government um, passed uh, under uh, Rab Butler, later Macmillan's Chancellor, the Butler Education Act, which uh, brought about comprehensive education for all children uh, after the uh, after the war, um, and the the eleven plus, and that kind of like a, a variated um, system uh, for. Creating a, a, a managed future society, which would have uh, manual workers, um, uh, technocratic uh, elites, uh, and uh, the sort of um, uh, the, the the managerial classes as well. Um, so, the idea of the state stepping in to reorder and restructure societies that don't work when you kind of leave them on their own um, was not. This was not a kind of a, a thing of the, the, the radical left, and indeed Keith Lowe writes. In the idealistic atmosphere of 1945, the clamour for greater government involvement in society was impossible to ignore. In war-torn Europe, it was not only communists who pushed for state-led reform, but also many conservatives and Christian democrats. In other parts of the world, the calls came equally from American New Dealers, from Asian and African nationalists, from Latin America's right-wing populists. Experts of all political persuasions, like, uh, likewise, wish to harness the power of the state, from scientists like Britain's J.D. Bernal, to America's Edward Teller, to economists like John Maynard Keynes and Jean Monnet. All of these people believe passionately in the power to, of the state to, ref, to transform uh, our lives for the better. I suppose one thing that one thing that one can liken it to now is the um, the broad clamour for um, uh, some kind of uh, international green new deal. When you read about the um, the desirability of this in uh, everything from the the New Statesman uh, and the Guardian on the kind of the liberal left through to the the Times and the Financial Times. Um, uh, and the economist uh, on the the, the, the centre right, he's starting to realise that uh, uh, these newspapers all understand their readership. They all spend a lot of time 
polling and uh, doing focus groups with their readers, and they understand that there is a you know a broad consensus that states now must act, and it doesn't really matter how much money they throw at it, but they they have to considerably, and you can see Biden in America. Um, uh, heeding heeding this, you know, he's not simply making a sop to the left. He knows that this is popular politics. Um, so that that is to some degree um, uh, analogous to the kind of the consensus that was emerging uh, after the Great Depression and after the Second World War that states managing societies was no bad thing. However. Um, Keyslow writes, And yet, as the war had demonstrated, there were just as many dangers in state solutions as there were benefits. Had not the belief in a strong centralised state also been one of the foundation stones of Nazism, Stalinism and Japanese militarism? Those who pursued state solutions to the world's problems could sometimes be quite fanatical, as could those who opposed them. In the aftermath of the war, the old arguments between those who believed in the sanctity of the individual and those who believed in the transformative power of the collective were resurrected. But it was the centralisers who, who now won out more than they had ever before, sometimes with quite startling results. One kind of countervailing tendency in all of this was the, uh, the belief amongst many in the uh, ashes of uh, post-war Europe and Asia that utopias were possible at all. Um, Theodore Adorno, that uh, member of the Frankfurt School of Social Research and uh, philosopher and critic, essentially said that, um, you know, in a a, a post-war Europe, as Tony Judd put it, it's built on the ashes of Auschwitz, um, the the idea that you can have utopias, the idea, you know, utopias themselves are, are entirely dangerous and suspect ideas, but that um, you you know your future the future world you hope to build is already built on a kind of a mountain of bodies, um, and that um, the the best one can hope for is something more more realistic a a society that is um, perhaps permanently and healthily sceptical of the, the the visions of others. Thinkers like Friedrich von Hayek, um, who wrote The Road to Serfdom in 1943, um, and who had lived in Austria through not only uh, the Catholic fascism of Dolphus, but also the, the, the Nazi takeover and the attempted communist coup, basically put forward a thesis that... Um, Liberty uh, could not be guaranteed by the state. In fact, the state would always be, to some degree, uh, an enemy of of liberty. And the less uh, state intervention there was, so much the better. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. His theory went that um, fascism and communism could be explained by the advance of the state, the, the growth of the state, and that, in his view, even supposedly benign states, uh, if they became too powerful, if they um, were able to uh, tax and spend too excessively, if they were able to intervene in markets too reg- sort of uh, readily, if they were uh, able to nationalise, to build um, houses... Um, where uh, private industry should do that, or to provide health care, or, or, or what have you. Inevitably, totalitarianism would follow. As a theory um, of totalitarianism, it's, it's obviously a, a weak one, um, even at the height of Britain's welfare state in the, the 1970s. Uh, there was no suggestion whatsoever that Britain was likely to become a, a totalitarian, a fascist, or a revolutionary socialist society. This is, is a nonsense. Hayek uh, himself were, was interested in a particular kind of liberty, and really, when you get down to it, he's interested in, in the liberty of capital, the liberty of um, people of money to be able to protect that money from the state, to, to move it where they, they saw fit. And the, um, the power of this idea really has reshaped the world after the end of, of the 1970s. The ability of capital to move where it, it likes now is one of the, kind of the key features uh, of the world that we face. It's one of the, the, the key aspects of globalisation that emerged in the 1980s uh, and 1990s. Once again, proving what Milton Friedman had said about the ideas that were lying around when crises came and the period of kind of the the power of um, the advancement of of the state broadly came to the end in the uh, the, the mid to late nineteen seventies uh, when all of a sudden new ideas um, began to 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 dominate political discourse. Uh, partly because the the channels of discourse, newspapers and TV shows, TV channels across the Western world were happy to disseminate this kind of stuff because of the people that tend to own those newspapers uh, and, and and TV TV stations. But anyway, to rewind and look at the 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 post Second World War period in 1947, uh, Hayek and collaborators set up the Montpellierin Society. The, the first meeting of uh, a very fringe, at the time, a very fringe group of uh, e- economists and philosophers who uh, argued uh, against the, um, the trend towards um, state provision of um, services, state provision, uh, state intervention in the economy, powerful trade unions, uh, and a, uh, a, a centrally managed society. This, they thought, um, would not be something that could 
they, they could get on the political radar immediately, but they were nothing if not patient, and they knew that it would probably take decades for this idea to fully establish itself. One reason why there was no chance of um, Hayek's ideas having any traction uh, in 1945, 1955, or even 1965 was the scope of the, the damage um, uh, in the aftermath of the war. For example, in Italy, 13,000 bridges had been uh, damaged or destroyed as a result of the war. In Britain, uh, bombing and V-weapons had destroyed 202,000 houses and, uh, in and made another 255,000 uh, uninhabitable. There is no free market solution for that. In France, 460,000 buildings had been destroyed and 1.9 million damaged. Germany had lost 3.6 million apartments, or a fifth of all dwellings in the country. The Soviet Union um, had seen uh, all the major cities uh, laid to waste, Kharkov, Kiev, Odessa, and Minsk, but also 1,700 smaller towns and 70,000 villages. And, of course, there was no chance of uh, anything other than Stalinism ruling uh, the Soviet Union, um, uh, and at least until the, the, the 1970s. Um, in Poland, um, the, uh, 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 the entirety of Warsaw, for example, was razed to the ground. Um, and the destruction of Poland arguably um, wasn't, wasn't fully recovered from until perhaps the 1980s or perhaps even the 1990s. Um, in the, for example, the Kiesel rights. In the aftermath of the war, the country, Poland, was dismembered and then reassembled with parts of devastated Germany. Nobody knew how to estimate the number of houses or cities destroyed because it was not clear which houses or cities to include in the calculations. Such destruction, which was as bad in Asia as it was in Europe, took uh, as enormous toll on the world's population. Um, took an enormous toll on the world's population. It was compounded by the massive displacement of populations that took place during the war. In 1945, there were around 9 million homeless people in, Germ in Japan, 20 million in Germany, and 25 million in the USSR. Some estimates for China, although they can never be as much, much better than guesses, put the figure as high as 100 million. All of this was, um, was only made worse after 1945, when the world population began to suddenly boom when rural populations once again took up the long-term flight from the countryside into the cities. A lack of urban housing was therefore a truly global problem in the wake of the war. So whilst um, the, the trauma of the war and the, the losses of the war um, led many uh, aspects of post-war societies to exist with this, this, this shadow over them, for some, for those who believed in planning, it was uh, a, a rare and valuable opportunity. So the, perhaps the most famous architect of the 20th century, Le Corbusier, um, had seen it as a, 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 an opportunity, uh, even before the, world, the, the Second World War, Le Corbusier, who had all, always argued that buildings were essentially kind of machines for living and working in, had um, hoped in his sort of wildest, most modernist fantasies that cities would be 
somehow torn down so they could be rebuilt from scratch, having most cities having grown like, you know, London or Hamburg or something like that in, in fairly random fashion since the, the early Middle Ages. Politicians generally tend to ignore people like that um, uh, who want to recreate society from scratch, though the, the rebuilding of Moscow and the broadening of streets and the levelling of buildings in the 1930s comes some, somewhere uh, close to that. Um, but with so many towns and cities in ruins, uh, writes Keith Lowe, a complete redesign suddenly seemed possible. And in 1945, there, there, we have a moment where anything seems possible. And this is the, the curious thing, the fascinating thing about that historical moment. When around the world, suddenly um, everything seems to be up for grabs. Um, Keith Lowe writes... Rather than mourning the devastation of their cities, therefore, many architects and planners saw it as an opportunity they had been waiting for. Urban planning is often born of the canon, wrote one French intellectual as he contemplated the ruins of Brest and Lorient. Now, at last, these notoriously squalid French coastal towns could be rebuilt as grand ports worthy of the 20th century. Germany's Paul Schmidt-Henner and Constantin Gutzow um, felt that the same way about Hamburg and Lübeck, uh, and even went so far as to call, call their bombings a blessing, albeit one that was heavily disguised. In Warsaw, which was by far the most devastated city in Europe, architects like Stanislav Janowski uh, enthusiastically joined the Bureau Obudori Stolici, the capital reconstruction office, knowing that only in this place, in this time, would they have, and I quote, a chance to fulfil their most magnificent dreams. Of course, the most optimistic country of all was Great Britain. The Blitz had been a planner's windfall, announced a British consultant in 1944. Not only did it do a certain amount of much-needed demolition for us, but, more importantly, it made people in all walks of life realise that reconstruction was, a necessi- it was, was necessary. Other British planners uh, wrote with enthusi- enthusiastically, of the chance to make a fresh start of Birmingham, to make Durham a city beautiful, and to turn York into a city of our dreams. Exeter, according to its planner Thomas Sharp, was a phoenix ready to rise renewed from its own ashes, and Plymouth could now be redesigned as a city worthy of her glorious past and present heroism. So this attitude is is very, very prevalent in Great Britain. There is a belief that um, society and public spaces can be remoulded to make them more egalitarian, um, and that uh, that should be the kind of the the, the guiding spirit of the post-war era. Um, And Britain um, was determined, the the British government and large parts of British society were determined to plan boldly for the future. Um... If the Blitz did it, wrote the American housing expert Catherine Bauer in 1944, then that explains the secret guilty regret deep within, the, the, deep within many American liberals that we missed the experience. Um, I'm sure that most Americans didn't quite uh, in, uh, share, share their uh, misplaced enthusiasm. So we'll, we'll dip back into uh, the fear and the freedom at some point in, in the near future. Because it's a fascinating, a fascinating journey through that moment of unbridled expectation 
uh, and, and dreams for the future, dreams which, of course, uh, inevitably are never fully realised. Anyway, thanks so much for listening today. I hope this has been useful and interesting for you. Do come and check out the website at uh, explaininghistory.org and come and find me at uh, Patreon. There's going to be some new content going on Patreon pretty soon. And um, if you are uh, able to uh, drop by the Explaining History Facebook group, there's always something kind of interesting happening there. There's a bit more content on the Explaining History YouTube channel. But everything, uh, if you go to explaininghistory.org, that's the kind of the central hub. All, all the, the bits and pieces of everything I do is there. Anyway, take good care and I'll catch you on the next podcast. All the best. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.